afternoon, everyone. Uh, Council, again, we appreciate your flexibility with us uh, starting uh, our arguments this, this afternoon at 1 30. Uh, the next case is state versus lamp and we will hear from the appellant. Thank you. May it please the court. My name is Mark Hayes and I represent the defendant, Mr. Uh, Michael Lamp. On Tuesday, June 25th, 2019, Mr. Lamp reported to the sheriff's office and gave two pieces of address information. He filled out a change of address form that indicated his uh, staying at the Foxcroft apartments over the previous weekend. And he also signed a homeless log, which indicated his address going forward from that point uh, that he would be homeless. So he was documenting both his old address over the weekend and his new address uh, as being homeless. He had been staying with someone who was evicted and so he would no longer have a place to stay. He had no legal obligation to provide that old address, but he felt under an obligation to do so because it was the sheriff's policy that he um, report every change of address. But when we look at the relevant statute, 14-208.9a, it only requires the registrant to provide, quote, the new address. The, of course, is singular, so we're expecting only one address to report. New is the um, word used to describe address, not changed. And those are different terms. The state, in its brief, asserts that new and changed are basically the same thing, but of course, they're different words with different meanings. Now, often, it doesn't matter because there's a convergence between what is the changed address and the new address. The person changes their address, and by the time of the reporting, it's still their address. That becomes their new address, and so it doesn't really matter. It does matter, however, in situations like this case, where we have an itinerant registrant who's making multiple changes. And in those cases, like this one, if new and change mean the same thing, then these itinerant registrants would actually defeat the entire purpose of this registration scheme. There's a three-day window in which they can report their change. So if a registrant lives someplace on Monday and they change their address, they don't have to report that until Thursday. But of course, with these itinerant folks, he may move on Monday and then move again on Tuesday or move on Wednesday. And so then by the time of the report on Thursday, the address that he's obliged to um, provide, if it's just the changed address, would be that Monday address that's long since out of date, maybe by multiple generations. If, however, he is required to, as the statute says, provide his new address, the new address, one address, that would be the new address going forward from that report. That's the only way this scheme makes sense. Because if he's only reporting changed addresses, if he's constantly moving with these rolling three-day um, allowances for the report, he will never, literally never, have to provide an accurate address. And the whole point of this scheme, of course, is to know where these folks are. But if he has to report his new address, meaning that address going forward, then it does have meaning. So when he has to make that report, he only has to make the report going forward. Again, Mr. Lamp, because of the sheriff's policy, was reporting both an old address and a new address. But legally speaking, 
he was only required to provide that new address, and that address was homeless. Mr. Lamp did that by signing the homeless law. Now, the state uh, challenges the efficacy a little bit of signing the log instead of signing the change of address form. It preferred the change form uh, just because I guess it looks more formal or whatever, but there's no homeless box to check on that form. Um, and it also is obviously designed for receiving information about a traditional address. It has you know, a street, place with a street address, the city, that sort of thing, things that wouldn't make sense if you were homeless. In contrast, the state also presents this option of a homeless log, which is kept under lock and key at the sheriff's office, and if you're homeless, you have to go there and sign the log. And it's more than what the state kind of implies as just an informal sign-in sheet. State's Exhibit 5, which actually has three, um, three pages um, that all go together, that were kept together, First of all, has the sign-in sheet where you just you know, sign it every time you're going to be homeless. But it also has a um, kind of area description sheet that when I'm homeless, I'm not just out there in the world. I'm in this particular area, and there's that's included in the exhibit of the streets near which he would usually be hanging around when he's homeless. And then there's a third page, which is an attestation of, I understand by signing this log that if I am pre presenting um, you know, inaccurate information, I'll be in violation of law. So even though we might call a log, it's not just some um, informal thing. Now, any rational person, if they were trying to register as homeless, when presenting with the option between filling out a form that doesn't have any sort of homeless option on it and something called the homeless log, is going to use the homeless log. And I wonder also, would the state have the same position about the homeless not log not being effective if we change the facts a little bit where there was a defendant who lived at an address and then signed the homeless log and then was found to just be at the first address and he'd never been homeless. If that defendant said, well, when I signed the homeless log, it, you know, that's, that doesn't really count. I mean, would that be a position we would accept? I'm sure the state wouldn't. Signing the homeless log was written recommend, um, representation, the registering of Mr. Lamb's address going forward as homeless. The state also can provide no alternative reason for why signing the homeless log is not the one thing that has to be, which is registering as homeless. The state actually says in its brief that there was, quote, no apparent reason for Mr. Lamp to sign the homeless log. It's basically asking us to say, well, that was just an irrational act. Well, if we're getting into irrational acts, then we are moving beyond willful behavior. But also, we don't even have to go there. There is um, a rational explanation. It's just not consistent with guilt, which is why the state doesn't want to um, to rely on it. So signing the law. Mr. Hayes, I'm sorry. Mr. Hayes, can you hear me? I'm sorry to interrupt yes, you. I have a question about the home about the homeless log yes, pages that are in the record. Um, on I'm looking at page 31 of the record, which is the signature page. Yes, ma'am. Um, and I'm wondering. At the, the first three signatures have a witnessed by and a signature of H. Williams, and then the last one is not witnessed. Is there any explanation for that anywhere in the record? There's no explanation for it. Um, I think the, I can give you a practical explanation for it. Okay. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear the last part of what you said. 
I said, I can give you a practical explanation for it, which I think is almost certainly true, though it's not um, expressly said in the record, which is he was signing it at 5.03. They let people loiter around at the end as they were closing up the office, and they were probably just in a rush. They took out the form, gave it to him. He was hesitating over things, signed it like not even the last minute, three minutes late, and it was probably quickly handed back in just negligence. I think that's I think that's the only answer that makes any sense. But okay, I guess um, the, the other question I had is about the um, other document that was signed on the same day, the um, pa on page 28 of the record, the change of information form. Yes, ma'am. Do we know that doesn't have a time on it the way the, the login does? Do we know if that was signed before, fill out before the homeless log? We have no information about whether the about whether they were signed. I guess it is possible on this record that the change of address form was signed earlier that day, but there is no evidence of a second trip. All the evidence was of one visit um, and that he signed it, did these things simultaneously that they should be kind of considered together. And given that the office closed at five o'clock and he signed the Homeless log at five to three. I think it's virtually impossible that um, the change of address form. Was, in fact, it is impossible that it was signed or filled out any consequential time after the homeless log. I doubt even a minute after, uh, but of course, there's no um, indication in the record as to what exact time. And we don't know whether the um, change of information form was was filled out and signed while the sheriff's office was still open or not? Well, it was necessarily signed done then because all these forms are kept under lock and key at the sheriff and you have to report in person. So, I mean, you have to go in. It's not like it can be submitted later. This is, you know, the homeless log and the, and the change of address form drawn is kept up there. You have to report in person and do it all at once. And there was no evidence whatsoever of like a second trip or anything like that. So, I think it's pretty clear that he came in and this was one transaction of filling out the form and signing the log. Does it matter which order he filled them out in as far as you're concerned? I really don't think so, because I don't think there's any way to separate them as being one transaction. Um, I guess you could argue that the latter uh, act would be the most recent and so yeah, but even then, I, what he's trying to accomplish is just documenting an old address and then also stating a new address. So I didn't even know then that the order would matter. Now, he did not testify about what he did or why, correct? That's right. Okay. Thank you. Um, so the state is contending that the form uh, the Justice Hudson was just referring to was an indication of a new address. but. Um, and that's where we get the false address from its indictment and its theory of the case. Um, but if we look at the form, it is not going to meet, uh, it is not going to be sufficient evidence that Mr. Lamb was representing this as his new address for a couple of different reasons. One, if we look at the form itself, the field is labeled new or changed, which also is another indication that new and changed don't mean the same thing. This is the form that you would write down a new address, but it's also the form that you would just write down a changed address, which under the sheriff's policy, you have to document, even though that's not a legal requirement, 
This would also be the form like I need to document an old address in order to keep my uh, continual record. Um, and so we don't, it's not like he circled new or circled changed. So the form itself doesn't tell us anything. And then again, we have to consider this as one transaction with signing the homeless log. If the form was meant as a representation that this is my new address, why sign the log? It doesn't make any sense. Um, if you are a rational deceiver <laughs> and you are writing this form you know, down uh, or filling this form out in order to deceive, the last thing you're going to do is create a discrepancy. You know, the last thing you're going to do is say, well, here's two pieces of information. You would just do the one that you wanted them to um, believe. And this again, this is the thing that the state just can't get around. When they say that the signing the homeless law was for no apparent reason, this is the reason to divide between documenting old and establishing new. Was are, are you saying then, Council, that we should look at these forms and the way they've been filled out by your client as surplusage in that he happened to fill out two of them and he only needed to do one and he correctly filled one of them out so that as a result of uh, filling out two of them is surplusage or should we look at it as the fact that he did it all correctly uh, a combination of both or something else well, Your Honor, um, what he's trying to do is he's trying to satisfy the law, which he does by filling up the log that tells where he what his new address is, and that's the statute. But also because of the sheriff's policy, he's trying to document an old address, and so you could call that privilege because trying to do that is not a violation of law. The sheriff's policy, which is in the record, says you have to document every change of location. That's not what the law says. But of course, he signed the form that the sheriff gave him, so he thinks that's true. But it doesn't really matter. If the address on the change of address form is right, wrong, even deceitfully given or not, it doesn't matter. Because by the law, he just has to establish what his new address is, and he does that by signing the homeless law. Well, for the sake of analysis by this court, surplusage came to my mind as I heard you saying he did one of them legally correctly and the other one he didn't have to do, but he did it anyway because that was local sheriff's policy. That right. could equate to be that could equate to be surplusage as a legal term. Uh, but on the other hand, I think I'm hearing you say he did both things correctly the state law as well as the local policy. But then again, I'm hearing you say, as you've said already, that new and changed are two different uh, ways of looking at this address, and yet both of them are included in the same form. So from a standpoint of analysis, how would you have this court to view this? I mean, I think surplusage is a good term. Um, it's not the same form. Again, remember, we have a homeless log then we have the change address form, those are different. But I am saying the change of address form didn't need to be completed uh, because he had signed the homeless log and they were in conflict, they were consistent. He was trying to do, do two different things. One, he was legally required, one, he wasn't. So it doesn't actually matter if the address on the form uh, was erroneous or not. Um, but I'm gonna get into 
how it was certainly not a willful act, even if one assumes he had to put that um, forward as well. Um, Mr. Hayes, uh, it, I'm having a little bit of trouble relating to the relating. I'm sorry, Justice Urban, I'm having real trouble hearing you. And I've got I've got my mic as close as I can get to it. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. All right. I'm having trouble relating to relating the argument that you have been making to us to the dissent. As I read the dissent, it assumes a misstatement or a misreporting and then uh, simply argues that there's not enough evidence to show that the misreporting was deliberate. I don't see this dissent as going into this statutory construction argument that's set out in your brief or in your argument today. Tell, tell me, well, what I'm missing, if I'm missing something. Right, so if you look at the dissent, um, there's a citation to, um, I'm blanking on the name of the case right now, it starts with an S, um, that Judge Dillon cites to. He defines willfulness, and part of that is, and, this, and then there's a case I cite in one of my briefs called um, Ramos, um, that talks about willfulness being uh, an intent and a deliberate action to do something in violation of law. So, in, as part of that analysis of was this willful, we have to look and say, was it an act done in violation of law? So, I, I think that's still all part of the same um, thing. Um, Does Judge Dillon go through that the exercise that you've just described in his dissent? I mean, he cites that case and he emphasizes that part of that uh, language. I think that's what he's getting at. Does he, but does he go through the analysis of which, what the statute requires and doesn't require in his dissent? No, I, I wouldn't say that he does. Okay, thank you. Um, but let's assume that there was, um, there was an obligation to, you know, put a correct address on the um, change of address form. Um, we still don't have a theory where any sort of uh, uh, error was willful. Um, you know, the, the $64,000 question, I guess, is was the writing of 604 rather than 602 rational? So just to have a little context, the state uh, sets up the scene at the eviction as the sort of gotcha moment um, that Mr. Lamp like, realizes he's in trouble or something. But at that point, he was still 100% in compliance. He had until Wednesday from the Friday change um, to make his report. Also, nothing had really changed. He had already not signed the homeless log on Friday and Monday. And he's been doing this for 20 years at this point. So he knows he has to make a new report. So there's not, um, there's not this like moment of panic where he needs to be deceitful or whatever. Um, and so then the question is, and he knows a compliance check is coming. Everybody agrees that's that's um, going to be coming. Uh, so what's the benefit of giving a random incorrect address that's going to be like immediately checked? There, there is none. The only rational explanation is that he's using this form to document a past address. And would it be rational at all for him to document an incorrect past address? Even if he's deceitful, it's not going to help him in avoiding supervision at all. And also, the most logical thing, even for someone who wants to be deceitful, would be to actually put down the address of where he was seen, because then there's evidence to back up his, you know, uh, the address he's putting forward. It would be consistent with the evidence. 
it would make sense putting a random address right when a compliance check is going to be coming would make any sense. So there's just not enough evidence to show willfulness. And again, I just can continue to loop back to the homeless log that's paired with it. Anything that's done on the change of address form has to be considered in light of the homeless log signature, which would be complete nuts to um, sign that as well if you're trying to represent that you're at the um, change of address form. Um, Counselor, Counselor in, instead of going and trying to figure all of that out as you have uh, so astutely done, uh, why not just let a jury decide that? I'm sorry, could, um, let a jury decide what exactly? Yeah, in terms of you going through what would make sense in terms of his background and his utilization of signing in and figuring out what needs to be done and why it would make sense for him not to misrepresent and coming to that conclusion yourself, why not let, just let a jury decide since there are some aspects of this which are incompatible with the information that he gave, why not just let a jury figure that out and therefore there would be no uh, error on the trial court's part as the defendants representing through you in denial of the motion to dismiss. Why not just let a jury decide? Because a jury has to make a decision based on substantial evidence and we don't have any direct evidence. We don't have a confession. We don't have any sort of smoking gun. The only thing we have for the jury to be able to um, reach its conclusion based on evidence would be the inference of what would rationally be done. And as Judge Dillon talked about, there's just no reason for it to be done. If we move into the realm of we're letting you convict because you did something, even though we think it's irrational, then willfulness is completely out the window. The jury cannot decide between two different things just arbitrarily. They have to have evidence, substantial evidence to base it on. And a lot of times in these intent cases, it's based on what would a reasonable person do. And when you have a situation like this, where even the state has conceded that when he acted and did these two things, one of the things, signing the homeless law, he quote unquote did for no apparent reason, we have moved into the realm of irrationality. And that is not something a jury can reach a conclusion based on. Arguably, the smoking gun, to use a term that you uh, colloquially used, is the 602 versus the 604. I know you're claiming that that is irrelevant, perhaps even surplusage, but why does not that not warrant being submitted to the jury? I'm sorry, could you just phrase that a different way? I didn't quite follow it. Uh, I'll try. Uh, you use the term smoking gun and you say there was no smoking gun here. Right. The trial court considered that smoking gun, in quotation marks, as being the fact that there was a form that uh, listed an address of 602 as opposed to 604. In terms of that, while I know your main uh, focus is on the fact that that was surplusage or otherwise unnecessary, why would that not be eligible to be given to the jury in terms of their consideration? Because I think, Your Honor, if the mistake itself plain can allow a jury to convict, you have removed the element of willfulness. If just the fact that there has been a mistake 
allows a jury to say that was a willful mistake, then willfulness means nothing. Um, and with that, I will reserve the rest of my time. Thank you, counsel. Um, we'll hear from the appellee. Good afternoon, your honors. May it please the court. My name is Deborah Green with the Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this case. The defendant, Mr. Lamp, willfully misrepresented his address to the sex offender registry for the purpose of avoiding supervision. He was registered as homeless in June of 2019, and Aradale County Sheriff's Office requires homeless reg registrants to come in and sign a homeless check-in log every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. By the time defendant went, to, went into the sheriff's office on June 25th, he had already missed the check-ins for June 21st, which was a Friday, and then Monday, June 24th. So registrants also have three business days to report a change of address. So def defendant's failure to check in would have been excused if he provided a physical address. So on the 25th, he goes into the sheriff's office, um, and this is the, the last of the three business days to provide a change of address. He fills out the sex offender change of information form, reporting that he had been residing at Foxcroft Apartments in building 604, apartment A6, since June 21st. Defendant did not reside at this address. Deceptive intent, as, as you all were just talking about, um, and willfulness can seldom be proven by direct evidence, but it must ordinarily, ordinarily be inferred from the circumstances. In determining the absence or presence of intent or willfulness, the jury may consider the acts and conduct of the defendant and the general circumstances existing at the time of the commission of the offense. So going through um, why Mr. Lamp would do one thing versus another, um, by providing a physical address, defendant was not required to sign in the homeless log, so that gave him an excuse for missing the check-in days of June 21st and June 24th. Going forward, since he had provided a physical address, he did not need to come in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday um, to sign the homeless check-in log. So that just gave him some buffer, some breathing room um, to, to not have to, have to come in. He did not ultimately get the benefit of that mis misrepresentation because he was discovered the following day. Defendant also signed this, <laughs> this infamous check-in log um, wait, 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 let me, I'm, I'm not sure I quite follow. Didn't he, uh, and, and maybe um, you're disagreeing with Mr. Hayes' summary of what happened on the 25th, but my understanding of his um, explanation was that the defendant came into the sheriff's office, filled out the newer changed address form in which the address on Foxcroft was inaccurate. Um, and then on that same day of that same visit to the sheriff's office, um, at the end of the visit, filled out a form saying that he was homeless. So, is that not accurate? Is he that did. not what happened? Yes, Your Honor. He, um, defendant did fill out both of those forms. Um, I think the meaning of why Mr. Lamp filled out the homeless check-in log, I think, is 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 in disagreement between the you know the defendant and the state. Um, under the state's view, that uh, signing the homeless check-in log is not a change of address. There is a specific form to change your address or information. It is titled sex offender change of information form. It says it has a place to provide your old address and your new address. Um, Mr. Lamp filled it out on the, it's the, I think you guys have already um, pointed to it, but it is on page 28 of the record. But at the top, 
Mr. Lamb put homeless. And then on the bottom, he put the Foxcroft address. So in order to. Ms. Green, does the statute require the use of the specific form or does it just say give written notice? I think it, it does not. It does, the statute does not mention a specific form. But there is clearly a, a procedure in place that defendant knew about because he utilized that procedure to change his address to this physical address at Foxcroft apartments. But he did not use that in the same day, in the same visit, potentially, he did not use that same form to, to flip it to say, okay, I'm no longer at Foxcroft, now I'm again homeless. It would be the exact same form, but you would just switch and say, no, the, you know, the form that he filled out says homeless, Foxcroft. And it would say Foxcroft, now it's homeless. That it doesn't stand to reason that you would do the exact same thing, but by an entirely different method. Um, so, so my understand. I want to make sure I understand what you're saying is the substantial evidence that allows a jury to infer that he um, w w was in violation of the statute. And so, are you saying that because he didn't fill out a second, that he needed to fill out two change of address forms, and the fact that he didn't fill out a second one shows that he was intending to deceive? Is that your argument? Your Honor, I. So, yes, I do think that he needed to fill out a second change of address form to again change his address. Well, so but, I understand that yeah. that's what you're saying. The sh your interpretation of the sheriff's department's use of these forms, but if I look at the statute that he's a that he stands charged with, it says that um, if he's convicted of a sexual offense, requiring to register as a sexual offender, and two submits information under false pretenses to the sexual offender registry, that's what he's charged with doing, and that's what the jury has to decide: did he actually do that, right? Yes, yes, you're right. And, and that statute very clearly has the requirement of false proof of false pretenses. Yes, you're right. And so that means that the state has to have substantial evidence to get to the jury, substantial evidence that, that his actions were calculated and intended to deceive. And so I'm trying to understand what's your argument about the substantial evidence, the established facts in this case that would allow the inference, I understand that we don't have direct evidence, um, but what established facts would allow the inference that this was calculated and intended to deceive? Okay. I think, yes, I, I understand what you are asking. So not only, so the address provided on the change of the address form was incorrect. So he did not ever live, the defendant did not live at 604, Building 604 apartment. I'm sorry. I may have switched that. Oh, yeah, no, I didn't. Building 604 apartment A6 uh, on Foxcroft Lane. Um, so that is, I, I don't even think that's in dispute at this point. I think that defendant did not did not reside there. Um, so taking all of the, and not just that, and not just the fact that um, Mr. Lamp just signed the the um, the check-in log. I think that to submit this case to the jury, you would look at all of the circumstances and the totality of the circumstances and see if taken together they create an inference that um, 
or create enough of an inference to, to submit the case to the jury. So, oh, go ahead. Well, so, so let me just follow up on that. So if we, if we assume that, um, as you say, he didn't live in building 604, um, and the form said he signed a form saying he does live in building 604. If that's enough to allow a reasonable inference of the intent to deceive, wouldn't every wrong address be sufficient for a conviction and there would be no room within the statute for someone just making a genuine mistake about a building that has a breezeway across it and one says 602 and one says 604? Uh, yes, Your Honor, I, I do agree with that. And, and I think um, Mr. Hayes said that as well, that, um, I mean, essentially that would turn this into a strict liability statute and that's not what we're looking at here. But there are other circumstances, not just the the incorrect information on the form, on the change of address form. There is the, um, well, it is, it is the state's position and it, what makes sense to me, you know, obviously does not make sense to my, uh, uh, Mr. Hayes, but uh, that defendant create signed the, homeless check-in log to create confusion, which it indeed has. It has created a bunch of confusion. Why would he sign this? What does it, what is its effect? What did he think that it was, he was doing when he signed that? Um, somebody who's been on the, the sex offender registry for 20 years knows how to change his address. And it seems like this, it was, it was done with the intent to create confusion. And now maybe you, you know, you might say that this isn't a, a rational act, but when people are trying to cover up a lie, a lot of times they, they do things that are not rational. You can't always explain. Let me ask you, let me, let me stop you for just a second. Um, when he filled out this, this log, um, wasn't he in fact homeless? I, I don't think that's in the record, uh, whether he was homeless at that time or not. We don't actually even know that he was at, at a minimum, he, Mr. Lamp was at Foxcroft Apartments helping his friends move out. At the most, he lived in Building 602, Apartment A6. I thought the record reflected that they had been evicted, and so nobody lived in the, that apartment, either of those apartments, by this point. And if he wasn't living anywhere, wasn't he supposed to fill out something saying he was homeless? I mean, yes, Your Honor, I understand what you are saying, I think, in that... He did not live, he's, the defendant certainly did not, after eviction, did not live at, at building 602. Um, those occupants, if, if he was one of them, were he all He didn't evicted. have an address. Wasn't he supposed to fill out, sign the homeless log? Well, we don't actually, there's no testimony of, or evidence about where he went after that. So we don't know that he was homeless after that, after moving out from Foxcroft Apartments. But if he was homeless, then yes, I absolutely 100% agree that he would need to fill out a change of address form to say that he is homeless, not sign a homeless check-in log for, and he that doesn't have check -in. To fill, He doesn't have to sign the homeless log if he in fact doesn't have an address? He does, but he has to register as homeless. And then those individuals who are registered as homeless, those, are, those individuals are required to sign the check-in log. So first he has to register as homeless, not simply sign a check-in log. Uh, Ms. Ms. Green, I'd like to go back to Justice Earl's question because I'm, I'm not sure I understood the answer. Okay. We've got 
I mean, I understand the argument that there is a misrepresentation as to the address. I think the two of you agreed that the mere fact of a mis of a misstatement without more might not be enough to show intent. Without giving me sort of the explanation, can you point to specific facts that show that at the time the defendant listed the inaccurate address, that he did so with the intent uh, specified in the statute rather than as the result of a mistake? What facts show this wasn't just a mistake? Yes, Your Honor. I think that the facts of those, you, you, we just have to, because it is just circumstantial evidence, so we just have to well, look at you, the can circumstances. You point, can you point me to the specific circumstances that you're- Yes, Your Honor. It was the, the benefit that he received because he'd already missed two sign-in days, so he was able to explain those away. Then he would also get the uh, the benefit of not having to come in to the to sign um, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday of the check-in log. Okay, is there any oh, other? Yes, there, there are more. I'm sorry, I'm sorry for the pause. Um, additionally, um, I think that the fact that he signed the check-in log, log is in itself evidence that he knew what he was doing, even though it does, there doesn't seem to be any real reason to do it. That is why it does show that he knew what he was doing. The, again, defendant's been on the sex offender registry for 20 years. Just signing a check-in log is not a change of address form. The, the sex offender change of information form has the place that says new or changed information. That is where new or changed information goes. There is no indication that the check-in log, which is just sex offender without address check-in log, it is there are two different reasons for having two documents, right? A check-in log indicates when you check in, you're indicating your presence. When you go to a CLE, you sign in because you are indicating your presence. But a change of address or a change of information, the purpose of that is to do just that, to change your information, not to check in. The purposes of those forms are are entirely different. And somebody who has been on the sex offender registry for 20 years knows this. And so the fact that he did check in as homeless without with nothing else, it does create this suspicion. Why did you do that? It, is it so when he got caught not living at Foxcroft Apartments, there would be, he could fall back on, well, I, I also signed the homeless log. Also, Deputy, um, James, a trained officer at the Sex Offender Compliance Unit, who had been interacting with the defendant for about four months at that time, testified that he believed that defendant misrepresented his address on the change of information form in order to avoid supervision. So that was his opinion based on his interactions with the defendant. Um, you know, somebody who is, who is trained in this area felt as though defendant acted as though he did not want to be supervised. Um, in addition, with I wanted to also touch on the difference between old address and new address. Um, defendant was required to report any a change. Let me start with the with the statute. I think that will be easier. The statute requires that if a person required to register changes addresses, the person shall report in person and provide written notice of the new address. So there is no distinction in the statute. And that's not the entire statute, that's just the uh, relevant portion. There's no distinction between old address and new address. Um, 
And the way that I understand Mr. Hayes's argument is that if a registrant moves before a reporting is required, then the last address is this old address. And that that views it in in terms of whether that old address was old to the registrant. Um, and then he doesn't have to re report that old address because now it's old and he would only need to report a new address. Um, but the change of address is from the perspective of the registry. It's a new address to the registry. It's a changed address from what is currently in the registry, not how you feel, what you feel about the, whether it's new or old to you personally. It is the, the whole reason of reporting new addresses are for the registry. And so if a registrant um, changes addresses from what is currently in the registry, the registrant must report that change. That serves the purpose of the registry for law enforcement to be able to track down people. Of course, yes, there will be a three, three day delay. There could be a maximum of a three day delay in reporting a new address or a changed address um, because the state allowed, I mean, because the statute allows that buffer. And I mean, that is just reasonable to give people three days to, to report a new address. Um, but taking, taking Mr. Hayes's view of a new address, old address a little bit farther, if a person was, was not required to report an old address and he never stayed at any place more than three business days, he could avoid reporting any change of address. Um, for example, if a registrant moved every three business days on the third business day, his last address would now be an old address and his new address wouldn't yet be required to re be reported. So the next three business days, three business days later, his old, his new address is now his old address. And now he doesn't have to report that address either. And he doesn't have to report his new address for three more business days and so on and so on. And so taking that out to an extreme, it could be that people who move quite often could get around ever having to report their address. And that is not the intent of the sex offender registry. Going back to the the standard of, of review, I know that I know that this court sees uh, probably a, a good number of sufficiency of the evidence um, cases, but we are not talking about just as a reminder. Um, the state is entitled to every reasonable intendment and inference to be drawn from the from the evidence, and any contradictions or discrepancies are to be resolved in the favor of the state, not in the favor of the defendant. And so, when we don't know what something means. I don't think the appropriate standard of review is to resolve it in defendant's favor. They under this bar of sufficiency of the evidence. Those things should be resolved in the, in the state's favor, of course. Uh, let me just ask you about let me help me help me understand that because um, I certainly agree that on the uh, question of whether uh, on a motion to dismiss, the evidence was sufficient to go to the jury. We we um, view the evidence in the light most favorable to the state and draw all the reasonable inferences therefrom. But the state still has the burden of proof, right? So the state has to have uh, has to actually have substantial evidence um, of of every element of the crime, right? If there's if we don't know, there's no evidence. We can't just say, okay, well, we'll just infer, right? Yes, yes, Your Honor, I, I would agree with that. Um, I do think that substantial evidence is here. Uh, it is it is entirely circumstantial, which of course does make it hard. 
Um, and this is a close case. I'm not saying that it that substantial evidence is completely 100% in favor of the state. It is a close case, but substantial evidence is here and it is enough to get this case to the jury for them to decide innocence or guilt. And the, also with regard to how an individual changes their address, um, Amy Dyson, the de a detective sergeant with Iredell County Sheriff's Office, did provide testimony on how a person um, does change their address. So on, on the transcript, pages 37 to 38, um, she was asked, is there a procedure for the sheriff? I'm sorry. Is there a procedure that the sheriff's office has for offenders when they change their address from one location to another? And she answered, yes, ma'am. They have three business days to come in to the office and fill out a change of address form. And then Ms. Dyson was shown the change of information form, which she identified as the, the change of address form that she had just mentioned. Um, when defendant changed his address from homeless to Foxcroft Apartments, he used that change of address form. It is, it's not reasonable to think that he didn't know how to change it back, that you would use the same form. And so concluding that defendant was trying to change his address by signing the homeless check-in log just is not, that logic just does not follow. Um, it, it makes more sense that the signing of the homeless check-in log was to create confusion, to create distraction if he were caught. Um, he could always point back and say, well, I signed the, I signed the homeless log. Um, I think that's about all I have. Um, if the court doesn't have any more questions, I will conclude and respectfully request that this court affirm the lower court's ruling. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you. A few things. Um, first, the state's contention that you have to have a specific form. It's nowhere in the statute. It doesn't make any sense. The homeless log is not just a sign-in sheet. I would emphasize again that it is a collection of documents with a specific attestation that I understand by signing this thing. I could be subject to uh, penalty of law. This is all state's exhibit five, um, which I'll refer to the court to. Um, Ms. Brand also refers to a motive of confusion as a possible reason, but confusion is not deceit. Confusion would actually be irrational. You don't want to confuse people if you're lying. The hallmark of a good lie is that it's consistent, not confusing. Confusion invites investigation. It's irrational to do something which would confuse it, confuse the situation when you can just assert, this is where I'm saying I am. Why would you say, this is where I'm saying I am, and also, I'm going to create this conflicting thing as well, which will draw your attention to it. Um, referring back to uh, Justice Irvin's question um, about where is the evidence of deceit, um, Ms. Groom uh, responded that uh, the benefit of not having to sign the log would be a reason to um, misrepresent yourself. But that same benefit would be um, would be received by telling the truth. Right? So why not just tell the truth? That would also relieve you of the burden of signing the homeless log, 
And or why not at least assign do the address that matches where you were seen? There's no reason. It's just kind of nonsense. Ms. Green also alludes, uh, alluded to saying it was evidence that the officer thought that Mr. Lamp was um, uh, trying to be evasive. If you dig down into that in the transcript, the basis for that comment is that Mr. Lamp um, tended to come in late. So that's the evidence that he came in, you know, toward the end of the day. Uh, and so that indicated to him that uh, he didn't want to be supervised. And by the way, not wanting to be supervised, nobody wants to be supervised. I mean, they don't have to do this with a smile. They just have to do it. Um, Ms. Green, someone misrepresented my position about um, the requirements with this rolling um, obligation. Our position is if there is a change and then there, that triggers a reporting date, and then on that date, regardless of what happened in the meantime, you have to report your new address as of that date. So we're certainly not saying that um, these itinerant people can avoid uh, uh, reporting their current address. Actually, our interpretation is the only one that will ever provide the state and the sheriff's office with accurate information. This rolling requirement where you only have to report back outdated um, addresses would never accomplish anything. Finally, to kind of a theme that I've seen arise a little bit, which is this is a mess, let the jury decide. We can't do that because we have to have substantial evidence that the jury can base its decision on. We don't have direct um, evidence, as Justice Earls referred to. The only thing we have is kind of piecing this out by what a rational person would do in this situation. And I, I think I've um, demonstrated repeatedly that there's nothing um, rational um, about uh, the state's theory of deceit. But I just want to end on stepping back from all that we've discussed and really just asking ourselves, if you look at all this evidence, you look what Mr. Lamp did, it's just obvious it's just a mistake. I mean, just to step back as human beings, when you see the fact that he wrote in the very detail of the address that he is supposed to be um, lying about, it's elevated above the line, drawing the eye to it as the very thing we want to look at. That would be nonsense that that was the thing we were trying to deceive someone about. There's also the details about the buildings being joined. We've all been there um, in apartment complexes like that where you can't tell what's up and you know down. And I'll just say this too. As we've discussed this case, and as we're all about as versed on it as we're going to be at this point right now, without looking at your notes, can you tell me what the address was, where he was seen, the address that he put on the form, and then the third address the sheriff also mistakenly put down? I've had to have a notes in front of me the entire time. It is super easy to get these things mixed up. Even Ms. Green got it mixed up a couple minutes ago. It's just a mistake. Mr. Lamp has been in jail for three and a half years now because of what is effectively a typo. He deserves to be released. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both. Mr. Clark. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess until 2.45 p.m. God save the state and this honorable court.